Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Kamala Shamsi, the celebrated Pakistani and British writer best known for the award-winning novel Home Fire, which we did right here on The Stacks Book Club back in 2019. Her newest novel, Best of Friends, is a provocative and deeply moving tale about a lifelong odd couple friendship between two women that's tested to its limits when the past comes back to haunt them. Today, we discuss the book, the pressure of awards on Kamala's writing, and the idea of girl fear. Remember, our October book club pick is the memoir Fairest by Meredith Toulousan. Make sure to listen next week on October 26th when Anthony Christian Ocampo returns for the discussion. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Listen, if you love this show and you want more of it, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks and join The Stacks Pack. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means I rely on listeners like you to make the show possible week in and week out. So if you like what you hear, please show your love by joining The Stacks Pack. In addition to supporting work that you love, you also earn perks like our monthly virtual book club, bonus episodes. This past one was with brand new MacArthur genius, KSA Layman, and you get access to our super duper lively Discord. If you'd like to be part of this wonderful bookish community, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And thank you to some of our newest members, Joseph Thomas, KSA Layman, Michelle Obi, Megan Rose, David Jr., and Camille Whitaker. Thank you all so much. And thank you to every single member of the Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Kamala Shamsi. All right, everyone. I am thrilled today. I'm joined by Kamala Shamsi, who is the author of a brand new book called Best of Friends. She's also the author of a bunch of other books, including Home Fire, which was our book club pick back in 2019. So Kamala, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. We read Home Fire in 2019. It was such a hit. I still get people telling me that that was their favorite book we've ever read on the book club and all of this stuff. So I'm just, it's such an honor to have you. Diving in, in about 30 seconds or so, will you just tell folks about Best of Friends? So Best of Friends is a novel that has at its heart the particular nature of childhood friendship. You know, you become friends with people almost before you have character. Mm -hmm. And then you grow up and you become incredibly different people. 
and yet you're still friends with this person who now you may have very little in common with except the friendship. And what I want to do was to to plunge you into the novel when there are these two girls, they're 14 years old, Zara and Mariam. They're in Karachi in Pakistan. They've already been friends 10 years. And it's a time of enormous change politically, but also something quite important happens to them dramatically in their lives. And then we pick up 30 years later, and now they're in their mid-40s. They're both powerful women in London, very, very different in their professional world and their take on everything, but still the best of friends. Until that, that moment from 30 years ago reasserts itself and all those differences that they'd been tiptoeing around, they have to face head on. And the question that I started the novel with was, will their friendship be able to survive their differences and should it? Mm. I love so many of the questions that are central to this novel. I think like obviously the friendship, which we're going to talk about, but there's also a lot of other questions in this book about, you know, what does it mean to belong somewhere or to leave or to be kicked out of a place? What is the fear of authoritarianism? What does it mean to be a woman? And does that mean something different in different places? It's just like, yes, friendship. And then there's like all this other really, really juicy stuff in the book. I'm wondering how you got the idea to tell this story. I had known for a long time that I wanted to write a novel that had friendship just because friendship is so central in my life. And I used to read novels, including my own, and say, God, why is it that the friendships are always in the margin somewhere? Mm. So there was it was a really vague notion, but you can't get a novel from a vague notion. And then 2016 happened. You know, a year many of us remember as being significant in various ways. In Britain, you had Brexit. In the US, you had Trump. And suddenly a lot of people were having these conversations where they were saying, I can no longer speak to this family member, this friend who's been in my life forever. And we've always been able to navigate our differences, but it's impossible now. The stakes are too high. The differences are run too deep. It feels too personal. And that's when I thought, all right, maybe this is really an occasion to, to write that childhood friendship novel where you have these two friends who are very different, and now they're living in a, in a moment where everything feels personal. The differences mm. in the world, the different ways in which you see the world, it all feels personal because, of course, it is personal. And, and Tracy, that's the truth of it. When, when we say we disagree with someone politically, we're really saying our values are different. The way we think of our place in the world is different. The, thing, the way in which we relate to other people is different. Um, And so I wanted this moment where something external happens that forces them to confront these very deep internal differences. Yeah. I love that you said that because I think about that a lot, that when people say, oh, you know, you shouldn't talk politics or it's just political or whatever. I'm like, just political? Politics is the framework with, with from which we view the world and what we think is right and wrong. And I mean... The just in front of political is it's so inauthentic because at least for me, I feel that I am my politics are intrinsic to who I am, right? Like I believe that everyone deserves healthcare. I believe that women should have the right to do what they want with their body. I believe that we fund policing too much in America and that needs to to end. And so when someone's like, oh, it's just Paul, I'm like, you're telling me that the things that are central to my belief system are are adjust. 
and and they're not they're central <laughs> yeah you know it's 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 such an interesting conversation because you know i grew up in pakistan where we never said just politics and and mm. then i came to america for university and it was sort of a shock to me th- mm. th- that just before politics and and my writing always had some reference to political events and and i remember there was one point and this is you know way after university i was doing an event at a university around one of my books and and one of the students a woman in the audience stood up and asked a question about why politics comes so much into my novel hmm and i said i said i don't think of it as politics coming into the novels i just think i'm writing about people's lives and and what is happening in the political world has a bearing on people's lives and then i said and i promise you tracy i had no idea that what i was saying was anything other than a really hypothetical situation but i okay. said to her i and this was around 2002 Okay. I said if ever Roe v Wade is overturned in America I think you'll stop asking that question of why I'm bringing mm. politics into women's personal lives. Oh my gosh. And 20 years later how do you feel? <laughs> so depressed. What you yeah. know I I don't want to be right about these things. No. And, no. And actually not right not. because I didn't I didn't think even when I said it I thought Right. You know, you are like hyperbole. It was totally I'm a fiction writer inventing right. a fictional situation. Right. Oh yeah. my gosh. And what did do you remember what the person said back to you? I'm not sure she said. I mean she gave me this look like yeah okay I get it. Oh okay. You know? Yeah. I mean that so that's one of the things that I really loved about this book was how much the politics were in it. Like even from a young age, the young women when they're when they're teenagers when they're still girls, their families politics or or lack thereof and the way that they talk about it and don't. And I'm wondering like as a person you grew up at the same time as the early part of the novel in Pakistan. So I'm wondering how is the recent political climate in the world but you you live most of the time in Britain though you are in California right now just down yeah. the street from me um how the recent political climate in the world is shifted or how you've shifted your thinking about that knowing that you grew up in a place that was very political and very politically volatile when you were you know of the same age as these young girls at this time um shortly after 2016 after Brexit happened someone in london said to me so how are things politically in pakistan are, are things getting better and i said no no they aren't getting better in pakistan but they're getting worse everywhere else so the gap has narrowed you know right um, right it, it does it feels it feels very grim because it always used to be the case that that however bad things were where you were situated you could look to other places and see mm. what hope looked like and see these moments of change and and periods of transformation and it feels wow. right now as though we are living in an era of populist politics in so many parts of the world and that it's happening at this worst moment where you know this summer somehow particularly the climate emergency mm-hmm. i'm you know as you say i've been in in california through this extraordinary heat wave mm-hmm. before that we had an extraordinary you know record breaking temperatures in london and of course i'm from pakistan and at the moment the the floods there i can't actually get my my mind around it 33 million people are displaced right now because of floods <sighs> 33 million and it's not making headlines everywhere yeah i mean so we have so we have the worst leadership at the worst time everywhere right. everywhere and do you yeah. like did you did you ever think you would see 
things like did you like did you have a sense that this was coming? Obviously not the offhanded comment about Roe, but like did you have a sense of the shifting the shifts in other places, you know, outside of Paxa, like, were you able, because in the book, one of the characters sort of like has this great, uh, there's an article written about her and she has this great sort of speech where she's talking about what she saw in Pakistan and what she's experiencing in London and how there's this slide towards authoritarianism. And I'm wondering if like, as you were living through the lead up to 2016 and all of these major changes, were you thinking in that way too? Or was this as shocking to you as it was to so many other people? Um, it was It was horrifying. It wasn't shocking. And part of the reason is, I think what was shocking to me was, was post 9-11, seeing the mm. number of governments in the world that very quickly moved to roll back civil liberties in the name of, of security. And that is such a classic dictatorship move. Mm -hmm. And as soon mm -hmm. as that happened, I thought, I grew up with this. Hmm. I grew up with this idea that there is, a, you can either have security or you can have civil liberties, but you cannot have both. And I knew the nonsense of it. And it was, it was very, it has been very scary to watch that. So I sort of feel that sort of from 2001 onward, I mean, I've been seeing it in America, of course, which is a country I've spent a lot of time in either at university or teaching, and then up close in Britain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and the way particularly certain kind of rules were clearly made or geared around Muslim citizens. Yeah. And you start thinking it's very frightening when you start doing that and making some citizens less citizen than other. Right, um, right. So I've, I've been seeing scary things coming for a long time. But having said that, it's still, you know, I still have a sense of shock looking around because... You know, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, as I did, you really had a sense that that the arc of history was moving towards the better. You know, right. I was a teenager when democracy came to Pakistan, when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison, when when the Berlin Wall fell, the Cold War ended. And you just really did feel, OK, it's it's all moving now inexorably in mm -hmm. a better direction. Yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> falls apart again. <laughs> it falls apart, which means it's it's prime for, you know, some kind of very dramatic change that that I'm not seeing yet, but I know is ahead. Yes, the the re the rebound, the rebuild. Yeah. Um, you talked about scary, and I we have to talk about girl fear. Girl fear in your well, can you explain to people what it is? I guess since you wrote it, you can explain it. <laughs> I'll tell you the moment that I really became sort of deeply aware of how there is this thing inside me I've lived with all my life. And it was in the most unusual settings. It was on the deck of a ship in Antarctica. Okay. <laughs> okay. You weren't expecting that, Tracy. Um, Not at all. I had been sent to write a travel piece and I was on the, sh on the ship in Antarctica. Um, and one day I walked out onto the deck at around midnight. It was midnight in the middle of summer in Antarctica, which means the sun just bounces beneath the horizon for five seconds, then bounces right yeah. up again. But even so, you know, it does get darker. You know, it's it's darker. And I was standing alone on the deck of the ship. And most people who'd been on that ship were actually on ice that they'd gone to spend the night on the continent so they could say, I have slept in Antarctica. I'm a brown woman from Pakistan. I'm not doing that. <laughs> yes. I'm not sleeping on the ice overnight. No, thank you. So, so I was on the ship and there were very few people on that ship. And I knew all of them because we'd been together for a while now. And I was standing on my own 
and I suddenly realize I'm on my own, outdoors, in the dark, and I have no antenna up for danger. Hmm. And it felt extraordinary and overwhelming. Hmm. I'm someone, Tracy, I live in London. I go around, I'm not a nervous human being. I go out at night on my own. I'm walking from, you know, the bus stop to my house or whatever, you know, at midnight. But I'm always aware. I'm mm. always looking out. I'm aware of footsteps. I'm aware of shadows. And it was only that moment in Antarctica that I briefly understood what it might mean to not have that ant antenna up. Mm -hmm. and not have that sense of fear that we don't even think about as women because it is so deep inside us and has been for so long. Mm -hmm. And I try to remember, when did it start? When did I learn this fear? And I couldn't remember a time I didn't have it. Um, and so the idea of girl fear is precisely that, that, that sense of threat and vulnerability that all the women I know have had their whole lives. And that feeling that, you know, at... When I talk to people about this book, I often say there's this moment where these two young women in a car ride and it's really fun and exciting. And then suddenly in one moment, something shifts and it feels terrifying. And Tracy, every woman I've spoken to has said, oh, yeah, I know that moment. Yes, a thousand percent. I mean, just reading you label it girl fear. I was I was literally like, oh my gosh, there's a word for this thing that I know. And I, you and I both share that we are, you know, brown, black, brown women. And I think that that probably adds to it considerably, you know, being in a place like America or a place like England. Um, I, I don't even have a question about girl fear besides having to explain it. I just, it was so incredibly powerful to read it. So thank you for writing it and naming it because it's like this thing that's go for going on for this one character sort of she's like figuring it out. And then all of a sudden it's like this thing that has become central to her being right. Like she's always aware of it. And I could relate to that because I am an anxious person and I too, I hear a footstep, I hear a knock, I'm like, what's happening some, something. So I feel like now I need to go to Antarctica so that I can experience what it's like to be like a straight white dude just like on a boat because that's what it sounds like you had that feeling. <laughs> Very much. And you know, when you say you are an anxious person, maybe you're just more honest about or upfront <laughs> with yourself about that because the truth is, you know, I walk through, I live quite near a couple of parks in London and I love walking through them. As soon as it gets dark, there is no way I'm entering that park. And yes. I don't think of that as an act of anxiety, but I just look at the park and I think, no, that's a shortcut to home, but I'm not stepping one foot in it. But I don't label that anxiety because oh. girl fear is so deep inside me. I just think, well, this is just normal. Right. It's, I'm just being safe or whatever. Yeah. 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 I I have that for sure. But I definitely also am like, get you know, my heart rate, like mm -hmm. I get nervous. Um <laughs> But, you know, when you were writing this book, I mean, there's so much about like home and like I mentioned earlier, home and belonging and and who gets to stay, who has to go, all of that sort of stuff in the small level, on the big level. What was it about sort of this dichotomy between belonging and being kicked out that was interesting to you? I think so often I wanted to, to tell a story in which actually it's kind of a gray area um, because you have these stories in which people absolutely want to move, mm -hmm. you know, 
And it's about how do I get out of this one place and go to another place? And then you have the other stories of people who really didn't want to go and are forced to go. And I think for a lot of people, actually, the truth is somewhere in between that mm-hmm. there, there are reasons you want to say, there are reasons you want to go. Or even if, you know, when you want to go, when you're told you must go, it's a source of sadness. But but then you make a home somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I, I sort of wanted to depict not a kind of binary case of you're so delighted to have left a place behind or you're always tormented by the place you've left behind, but actually the truth of what it is to be somewhere and have another place in your consciousness. And particularly in the book, I think one of the things I wanted to do, and I hope I did, was talk about how important it is when you have left one home and moved to another. Mm-hmm. How important it is to have some kind of connected tissue. And in, in this case, it is that friendship. Right. You know, these two girls who gl- grow up in Karachi together and then end up in London together. One of the reasons, you know, they're so important to each other is that they hold the memory of each other's childhood and all its reference points. You know, and one of them does, you know, when she's thinking about the significance of that friendship, she thinks about the fact that she knows that when one of her parents does die in Pakistan, this friend of hers will be the first person in London to right. be with her and to fly back home with right. her. You right. Know? Um, yeah. And so the sense that you you can have two homes, but there will always be a part of you that is living in another place as well. Yeah. I want to shift kind of aggressively hard. I want to talk about writing a little bit. Um, As I mentioned, we read Home Fire. It's an adaptation of a Greek classic. This book, Best of Friends, is written from whole cloth, as they say. You created it. How do you approach writing when you're adapting something? Or how did you versus creating something? And what was the easiest and hardest parts of, I guess, both? Or what, what was like you know, came easy when you were adapting versus, you know, you know what I'm getting at. I know what you're getting at. So Home Fire was the only one of my novels that, you know, I started off with any sense of what this was going to be. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, it was adapted from Greek classics. So it was a question of taking the Greek classic and seeing, you know, what I could do with it in, in contemporary sense. But it meant that I had my characters. I had the bones and the theme of the plot and it was the quickest book I've ever written. Wow. You know, it was done in, in in a matter of a few months because I didn't have to do that constant searching and figuring out. And this shouldn't reflect on anyone's um, reading of the book, but for <laughs> me, the writing of it, it meant because I wasn't getting constantly stuck and because I wasn't getting in a, I wasn't living in a state of terror and panic about what is happening next. <laughs> I actually enjoyed it less, the writing. Oh, interesting. Because there's something about that high wire <laughs> act of, I don't know where this is going. I may be taking the wrong turn. I mean, it can be horrible. So it didn't have the same horrible moments either. You know, right. with Best of Friends, there's a lot in the first draft that I simply had to cut out because it wasn't working. But then when you feel it, it's sort of coming together from nothing, you know. So it is, you have that whole cloth and now you've stitched some extraordinary, I don't know, jacket out of it, Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, and yeah, they're all those cut off bits on the floor, fine. But by the end, that shaping of it um, and thinking, how did I get from a cloth to this? Um, 
I really enjoy that, but it I do take a lot of wrong turns usually mm. because so much of my usual writing process and the process with Best of Friends was was make it up as you go along. And of course, as you know, because you've read it, the novel, it starts with, you know, it starts in the 80s and then it jumps forward 30 years. Well, that's the final version. But right. in my first draft, I actually did a lot of writing of those 30 years before yeah. realizing, oh, I need to do this for myself as a writer. But the reader doesn't need it. Um, huh. So so there were a lot of words that got written. And even as I was writing, I was thinking, ah, this is not going to work, but I need to do it. Right. Because you needed to know who they were and what they'd been through. Yeah. But how did you how do you then decide like, OK, this goes? How do you? What is there like a voice in your head that's just like, Kamala, this is bad, or like, are is it you with your editor? Like, how are you like these thirty years in between? Mm-hmm. Trash, put it in the trash. There's just this feeling of wrongness you get, okay, okay, and sometimes the fe- you know, and you have to listen closely because sometimes the feeling of wrongness is saying, yeah, this is an early draft. There's a lot that's not quite working in here. But you'll just fix it. But there's that other feeling of wrongness, which is just like, ah, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the thing was, as I was working on those 30 years, I kept finding myself literally visually doing a flash forward to this moment in present day. And I just saw, you know, one of the characters sitting on a park bench with one booted leg crossed over the other, Hmm. waiting for the other friend to come along. And I kept wanting to write that. And I thought, I have to write all this other stuff to get there. Mm. And I think that, you know, as soon as I start to think that, I just have to get through this to get to that image. And that is the image that starts the second section of the book. Right. Um, so you always, so, so some part of you always knew. Some part that of me always part of, knew. Yeah. Yes. But of course, some part of me was also in denial. So I did actually <laughs> need my editor to say, but really the story's in the first and last bit, right? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's so funny. Okay, I want to go back one more time to Home Fire and then I'll leave it alone. You write Home Fire, huge success, win the Women's Prize. People love it. How do you sit down to write the next thing? You've had this happen before. You've had previous books that have been successful, won prizes. You're, I mean, you're so beloved by readers and and other writers and everything. So I guess it's not just a Home Fire question, but how do you sit down to write the next thing and not feel stuck or pressure, or do you feel stuck and feel pressure from the thing before? You know, Tracy, I'm really very deeply and honestly grateful that the success of Home Fire happened with my seventh novel and not with mm. my first. Mm-hmm. Um, because by the time it happened, you know, I'm not like that that battle-hardened veteran now, <laughs> you yeah. know. And I know that when that happens to a book, you're really, really lucky. You know, and that, and it's, I'm in no, I'm not saying, oh, it was a bad book. I'm just saying, I know how many elements go into it. I know how many wonderful books are published every year, and a lot of them fade away or don't get that kind of attention. Only a handful of books in a year will get, only one book will win the Women's Prize. Um, And so I was able to say, well, that was really wonderful. And it means the fortunate thing for the next novel is it'll give it a head of steam because there'll be people who, will have read Home Fire and maybe will be waiting for my next novel or will be interested in my next novel. So that's a gift. Yeah. But the other thing I know, Tracy, from the number of books I've written is when you actually sit down to write, 
you know, whether it's your first or your third or your fifth or your eighth novel, and if it's coming off huge success or really the opposite, you're still sitting down with, or in my case, a handful of images, some vague themes, a little sense of direction and a blank screen. Mm. And once you actually get into the writing, the questions are the same. How do I turn this into a novel? How do I move the character from this room to the next room? Who are these people? And you just enter that headspace of writing. Right. And everything else really just has to fall away. I mean, the only way I can write is if everything else in the world, including the next novel or whatever expectations other people have, falls away. And my only question is, how do I make this the best novel I know how to make it? I love that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. 
I want to ask you a quick question about something you touched on before. Is there anything that is not in Best of Friends that you wish was? I mean, I'm sure. Yes, of course. <laughs> not everybody says yes, so I, you know, I always like to ask. <laughs> well, you know, there were there was a lot of writing I did in between. Um as I said, which I deleted. Mm-hmm. And there's some things in there that I I regret. So, um you know, so the for instance, I I think the thing I most miss is Again, we won't give away too much, but the relationship that that Maryam ends up in, I actually mm-hmm. had quite a lot about how that came to be okay. and what that meant for Maryam's relationship with Zara. That Sunny, there's this other person who is of primary interest in her life, um, and I did, I did actually really enjoy the writing of that, and was, you know, and there are ways in which I wish I could have had that in there, but but my hope would be that that when you come to that relationship, you get an inkling of mm-hmm. what comes before or emotionally what it meant. Yeah. I mean, I love that relationship. It's very makes me I'm like smiling right now just talking about it. So, I think you nailed it. Um, you also talked about everything has to fall away. So, let me ask you, how do you write? How many hours a day? How often is there music? Are you at home? Are you out in the world? Are there snacks and beverages? Are there candles, rituals? Like set the scene for us. How do you like to write? I mean, are there snacks and beverages for all things in life? There yes. are snacks and beverages. Come You're on. my kind of people. You're <laughs> right. my kind of people. Yeah. There, when I'm starting, there are long periods when I'm not starting. You okay. know, when I'm like, okay, I have this. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this. And then I don't. And then I feel just sort of so exhausted by not writing and knowing I need to write that I mm-hmm. sit down. And, and when I do it, it does become, it's five days a week. So I take weekends off. Mondays to Fridays in the morning, wake up, have my cup of tea or coffee, read the newspapers, and then go and sit at my desk. And I'm not a tremendously early riser, so I'm not going to pretend this is happening at 6 a.m. or even 7 a.m. Okay. Um, But then I sit at my desk, and usually four or five hours at a desk is as much Mm -hmm. as I do or can do. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it'll be much less, particularly the early stages, which are hard, you know, there are days where nothing is happening and there's no point sitting at your desk for no purpose. I find it actually really useful to get up and walk. I mean, that physical act of movement can actually move the brain. Yeah. Um, so in the early stages, I'm much more lenient with myself. And I say, okay, today I only did it an hour and nothing is happening. But the deeper I get the novel, the more I just stick to that four or five hours a day. And again, when I'm starting, I might just manage a hundred words a day. And then the later I'm you know, the further I'm into it, the more I have a sort of handle on what I'm doing, it'll go up to 500, 600 words. Um, and then writing the final draft, which is the bit I love. I mean, writing a final draft is like swimming in the most familiar sea, <laughs> you know. Um, and at that point, it just, everything seems to fall in place. And and at that point, I can go to, you know, do I've done 1,000, 1,200 words a day, which is impossible at the beginning stage. Interesting. Can you say more about the snacks and beverages of which you partake? Yes, the snacks and beverages. <laughs> so if I'm in Karachi, then the day starts with tea. Okay, what kind of tea? So it's it's um, very strong. I guess English breakfast is, is the closest equivalent you okay. call it. Um, it's very strong tea with a lot of milk. Okay, this is, sounds like my kind just, of tea. Yeah, it just because the milk is different, the water is different, it doesn't taste the same anywhere else. Okay, okay. Um, 
so in in London, I start with a stovetop espresso maker. Okay, you know, and make myself coffee, and then I'll sit down and usually have another cup of of tea or coffee, and then maybe just be like, I don't know. Um, the snacks come later in the day. The later the day goes, the more yes. you know, kind of snacky you're getting, and then you might start with saying, you know, I'll have a bit of fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it may escalate to well maybe a piece of chocolate is what my brain needs now yeah. and, you know <laughs> at some point lunch happens and I try to delay lunch because lunch puts me into a food coma yeah same. so sometimes I won't actually have lunch till about 2 30 or 3 when I finish my writing day same 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 I like to try to prolong push lunch back I have yeah. two small children though and they eat dinner at 5 30 p.m so I oh. try to eat with them so sometimes I try to just have like a snack lunch like early mm-hmm. like a big bowl of yogurt with like fruit and granola and lots of honey and then by like two I'm like okay now I can really snack right. <laughs> so like, bring out the goldfish <laughs> okay what about you know you mentioned you've written this is your eighth eighth book right eighth book and your first book came out almost 25 years ago. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been, you're like a veteran, you said hardened veteran of the publishing world. What changes have you seen in publishing that excite you? What about ones that feel a little disappointing? Um, let's go, let's start with disappointment. Yeah, love disappointment. <laughs> you know, when, when my first book was published, my then agent who became and has remained my editor in the UK, extraordinary woman called Alexandra Pringle, publishing legend. Um, she said, look, the first novel, you know, it may not sell millions of copies and and or forget millions, even thousands, <laughs> um, or make it to prizes. She said, that's okay. You are a writer who I believe in. You will come good. You know, mm. and it may take to your second, third, fourth novel. Um, in fact, it took until my fifth novel, Burn Shadows, before I had a novel that, you know, was sort of getting serious attention in England. And there was not a moment where I felt, oh, I'm not going to publish anymore. Hmm. I really believed, okay, here's a publishing house that believes in me and, and thinks eventually, you know, it'll pay off to yeah. to invest in someone. You see that very rarely now. I mm. think now it's writers are told, you know, if the first book isn't a success, then let's find the next exciting debut writer. Yeah. And if the second book isn't a success, forget it, you're done. Um, which is so short-sighted. You know, because writers take, I mean, I took time working on my craft and learning things and gaining in confidence. Um, right. And you you have to, I think for a really robust publishing industry, you have to give people that time and space. You know, don't give them massive advances. I right. think that, you know, it's very wrong-headed to give someone a massive advance and then expect them to pay it off. I got very small ad- advances for my first few novels, um, you know, and mo- mainly earned my living from teaching. Um right. So, so that has been a sadness. Also, I think the um, editorial positions have less power. Marketing has more, mm. um, which is not necessarily ideal. Yeah, um, you know. And sometimes you hear people say things like, "Well, we don't know how to market this book." Well, it's your job to figure it out. Yes, your whole you know? job is to market think of the it book. as a challenge. When I start a novel, I have no idea how to write it. I figure right. it out. Right. <laughs> if something is quality work. You figure it out. Yeah. Because yeah. the audience um, exists. Audience exists. You know, the audience yeah. exists for for, for everything. interesting, good writing. Find it, figure it out. Yeah. You know, it doesn't fit the template of the previous books you've done. Create a new template. Right. Um, right. You know, uh, so that is what is, I think, um, dispiriting. What is exciting, I think there, I think a gap got created 
And a lot of exciting independent publishers now mm. are taking on and producing really exciting work. Yeah. And there is, there's a lot of lip service to diversity in a way that's annoying. But there is also, in addition to that, and, and in America, much more than England, I think you are seeing some deep down structural changes in the kinds of books that are being put out there, in the kinds of voices that are being heard, in the kinds of people that are entering publishing, the publishing industry. And, and that is terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, definitely exciting. It makes my life easier because I get to read books I actually want to read. Uh <laughs> I want to go back to the novel. I want to go back to 2016, Brexit, Trump, etc. When did you actually start working on this novel? And then how did the book change or did it change with the ways that politics were unfolding in real time? So, you know, in 2016, these conversations about, you know, old friendships fracturing sort of you know, made a light bulb go off in my in my head, but it didn't really form into a novel for a while after because Home Fire came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd finished I'd finished writing Home Fire by the time all this Brexit Trump stuff was happening, um, but it came out, and then you're on the road and you're you know all that. So it was probably a early 2019 that I really started to think about the novel, and late 2019 before I really started writing it. Mm. Um, and then, of course, this thing happened in March 2020. Oh, yes. You know, I'm this familiar. Little, yeah. Well, <laughs> 2020 was going to be the year in which I said no to all public engagements, cut down on travel, and chained oh. myself to my desk and wrote. So, so it's your is, fault. It's my you fault. You brought on COVID. <laughs> I did. Basically, I said I need the world to shape itself to, <laughs> to my particular demands. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I'm so lucky that what I do in my life really meant that sitting on my own, at a desk felt normal and that mm. it became a space of normal when nothing else was, um, you know, and all the, I mean, all the people who had to, the frontline people who had to go out and do their jobs. I mean, God bless them and how they managed it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, because they had to in many cases. Um, so I was, I was quite lucky in, I was very lucky in the job I was doing and also in the fact that I could escape to 1988. In yeah. My brain. Um, yeah. But what was really interesting was the the second half of the novel, there's there's a part in it where, you know, one character ends up being a political donor, mm-hmm. a, a donor to a political party. And this is a story that actually kind of hit the news in Britain as I was working on a late draft that it oh, wow. suddenly became revealed that there is this club and people who pay £250,000 to the Conservative Party get to be a member of this club and they have meetings, regular meetings with the prime minister and the chancellor. And it became a new, huge news story. And I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting because I've been writing about all that. And of course, there were whispers about it in the press before. So it's not like I invented it, but it's that right. weird thing where where what you're writing, you know, becomes a much larger news story. And the points where you thought, am I, am I making this slightly absurd? Am I exaggerating it? And then the actual story hits and you realize, oh, no, if anything, I underplayed it. Yeah. I feel like I always I always think about that when I'm reading a book and I'm like, this is so right now. I'm like, so that means they wrote it two years ago and then yeah. it sat in edits and this and that. And I'm like, so they were really thinking ahead of what's happening. 
But when you're reading it, you just feel like, oh my God, they knew. And like, well, they didn't write right, it but, today. But also a lot of time it said when things are smaller stories and you think this should be a much bigger story. I mean, mm. in, I mean, it's a really worth, if we stop to think about political donations, they are such a worth thing. And actually in America, they've been going on so much longer. So the fact that, you know, you could have a Democrat senator hold up the energy bill, because yeah. he wanted certain changes written into them, you know, we're talking about it. And we know that he is the largest recipient of donations mm-hmm. from the energy industry. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. Well, it's fucked up is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's it's horrible, but it's, it's sort of kind of almost accepted that it's commented on, but no one is saying, how is this still a functioning democracy? Right. Well, you know? do, is it different? I don't I don't know about political donations in Britain, but is it do is is this a new thing there? These political donations? Um, it's a new thing to it's not a new thing, but it's accelerated. I see. And the kind of money that is coming in and the fact that these clubs, you know, specific clubs are being set up with a very specific sort of pain of you give this much money and this is what you will get in return in terms of government access. And once a month you will meet the prime minister and have this conversation and it's you know the kind of structure that's been created around it wow. um is new ours is more lawless right like it's just like secret giving tons of money and then like secret yeah. access in like a yeah. different way yeah. um i guess speaking of politics in britain i mean i'm talking to you the week that this will air in october but this is the week that the queen died and you're yeah. getting a new prime minister what do you do? You have any predictions you want to lay out on here? Since you predicted Roe and you predicted these donations and you predicted COVID, I feel like you're sort of giving magic over there. I mean, I'm really terrified by the new government. Yeah, um, you know, Liz Truss. I was not a fan of Boris Johnson. I thought I would celebrate the day he left, and then you have someone come in who, you know, it seems to be even more ideologically of the right. And you know, the, as you know from this book, one of my particular concern is the way migrants and refugees are, are treated in Britain mm-hmm. and the current government is sending signals that it's going to be so hard line. And, you know, again, this may not be a story that's come to America, but the previous government had said, you know, when people come to apply for asylum in the UK, before even considering their case, we will put them on a flight and send them to Rwanda and they'll be considered there. So essentially saying we don't want to have mm-hmm. to have any responsibility for any refugees from anywhere in the world. And of course, this is also happening, you know, the fact I mentioned earlier, 33 million Pakistanis are displaced by by floods. And you're thinking climate refugees, yeah. you know, that is going to be the next huge wave of refugees. We need a global humanitarian approach to that. I do not see Britain being anywhere in that conversation. Yeah. And that is a really sad thing. You know, yeah, I mean, that is it is such a huge part of of the book, you know, because, as you mentioned, our two main characters, they go from Karachi to London. So they're migrants. Then there's other characters that unfold who who appear and, and different people's partners and all of these things. When you're writing about issues that are so like of the moment, do you ever worry that like. I don't know how to say it. Sometimes it's really hard for me to discuss certain things that are unfolding because I'm worried that what I'm putting out into the world won't stand the test of time. Do you ever worry about that when you're writing a book that is like so full of so many sort of inspired by current events or like, you know, I guess kind of that you're going to put it out in a book and it's not going to work 
in a five year? Like, is that something that you ever think about? You know, weirdly, I think I would worry about that more if I was writing an essay today that was going to be published next week. Okay. Um, But a novel, my, however much novels may deal with things that are happening now, my feeling about a novel is it has to stand the test of time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, today it may be the relevant news story of the day. But there have there has to be enough in it and the way it's told, which has to be about story and character and relationship and human beings. And that needs to work in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Also, I write books that, you know, if I'm writing about Britain, I'm not just thinking I want a British audience to read this, who right. knows the news headlines. You know, I need an audience in Pakistan and America and India and China or wherever else yeah. to also read it. And the wonderful thing about the novel is it has so many ways in. Mm-hmm. So there are the novels you read and you recognize things that are familiar and you read them with that view. And then there are the novels you enter and it's all unfamiliar. Yeah. But that becomes its particular way in and delight. So so I, I always write novels that I hope will work both for people who are intimate with the world. And that could mean people living through a particular moment or it could mean right. people living in a particular country or demographic. But it should also work for those who don't know it, but find enough of interest there. I love that you said that because one of the things that I experienced when reading Best of Friends was sort of both of those things, right? Like I really connected with girl fear. Girl girl fear. I felt like this is this is me. She's talking to me. I'm here. But a lot of the stuff about the 1980s in Pakistan, I just didn't know. The The books are taking place in 1988. I was born in 1986. So it wasn't like stuff that I would have known. I would have had to, you know, research. And I was doing a lot of Googling. And I really actually liked that because I felt like it really brought me into the world even more. Because then I, you know, I love nonfiction. So I was like reading these like pieces and like, you know, I was like really filling up with both this fictional world and stories about the the political figures and the people that came up. And, and so for you saying that, like, it's both for people who already have a way in and people who are sort of looking for a way in, I felt like that really merged for me in both both kinds of people in me at once. So that was really fun. And I haven't had that in a while in a novel, to be honest. That's good. You are my ideal reader. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. <laughs> my dream. Um, okay. For people who love Best of Friends, what are some books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation with Best of Friends? Um, You know, the first thing I'm going to recommend to them is not a book, but just because I have just seen this, but but the new A League of Their Own TV series. Oh! Because there is a a female friendship at the heart of that, Max and Clancy, and I was watching that and thinking, yes. You know, you you see these women as adults and you know they've been friends forever. Okay. Um, so, yeah, watch that. Um, of course, there's no getting away from Elena Ferrante, you know, mm. the Neapolitan Quartet. And it's my relationship that to those books is, is a really, to me, interesting one, maybe not interesting to anyone else, because I read <laughs> them and I absolutely love them. And one thing that I loved was actually that it's not just about these two friends, but it is about the world they grew up in. And I also had a resistance. And the resistance was there are too many stories of childhood friends who are girls whose friendship really gets absolutely riven by sexual jealousy. Mm. You know, there's this guy comes along and it throws everything into disarray that they can't really recover from. And and there's, you know, 
so much envy in there all the time. And I thought, and of course that does happen, but I also wanted to write against that in, in some way. But but yeah. they're brilliant books. And, and, you know, I'd say they have to be anyone's first port of call in terms of childhood girl friendship. I've never read them. Oh, go read them. Should I? I don't know. I feel like I feel like <laughs> I'm not going to like them. I've sort of no, been, no. Like, you will. Resisting. You will. They are. They are fantastic. She's a fantastic writer, and they are fabulous, fabulous books. Okay. Last question for you. I'm going to spare you the question of what comes next because this book isn't even out yet. So I'll give you a break, but <laughs> okay. just know it's on the list. But I'm going to take <laughs> it off. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so here's the last one. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Um, my best childhood friend, you know, who is in fact a boy and, and, um, he, I gave him a proof of the book and his wife read it immediately. Um, and he said, well, I'm working my way to Jennifer Egan, which of course is brilliant. And then that terrified me because I said, the Jennifer Egan is so brilliant. Don't come to me after, but I'm waiting for him. I'm waiting for him to read it. Yeah. (laughs) That's so funny. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for being here. Everyone at home, you can get a copy of Best of Friends wherever you get your books. It is out in the world now. It's very lovely. It's It's a great investigation of so many topics that we talked about today. And then once you read it, you can also read the seven other novels that Kamala Shamsi has written. They're there for you. Kamala, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Tracy. It's been a pleasure. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Kamala Shamsi for joining us and to Glory Plata for helping to make this possible. Don't forget, Anthony Christian Ocampo will be back next week on October 26th to discuss this month's book club pick, Fairest by Meredith Toulousan. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website at the This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.